Um, I wasn't much interested in sports. I wasn't much interested in cars. I spent all my time, all my leisure time, out in the woods, in the mountains, in the swamps of Georgia, playing in streams. That was where you'd find me. When I reached high school, my father was stationed in Okinawa, and it was a gift from God, but I got into scuba diving, and I was in paradise. I have never, since that day, been so fascinated by the natural world as I was during those two years that I spent. After school, we'd go and get, throw our scuba tanks in the back of the car and go night diving and see the coral reefs in their full glory at night, and it was just a normal day for me for those two years, and it was such a, a blessing to me. Uh, when I returned um, and I got into college, I picked up whitewater canoeing, scuba diving, skiing. So you can kind of see the pattern that I followed throughout my life. I really was drawn to the natural world. And um, so it's not surprising that in college I decided to major in the life sciences. I started out thinking I'd be a marine biologist, but I realized how boring it was in the laboratory. So I ended up majoring in biochemistry and zoology. Now, as a child, I did have some sporadic um, contact with the church and exposure to the Bible, um, but it was never a constant in our lives. In fact, by the time I did reach um, high school, college age, I never, never attended church at all. And if this is the first slide you want to bring up, this is basically how I would summarize my spiritual life at the time. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Strangely enough, I can still, I had a, as I was walking across campus one day, in College Park, I had this thought, and the thought was that I, how I had dismissed any, any effect of, of God or religion in my life, it was just irrelevant to me, and it's not unremarkable to me that I had that thought, and that I can, I could take you to that very spot today where I had that thought. It's such a poignant memory in my life. And I don't think it's accidental that that's true. I think that God has set that as a milestone. Not a good one, but it was my starting point in my walk. And so I continued on in college until my senior year. And then I took a course in molecular genetics. And during that time, we studied in depth a famous publication by Watson and Crick describing the structure and function of DNA. It was a fascinating course but for me, very bewildering. And by the time, somewhere during that course of that, of that course, I remember thinking to myself, there's no way that this could happen on its own. There has to be a designer. And that designer has to be God, because no other creature, no created thing, could ever come up with anything so incredibly complex and incredibly elegant. I walked up to my professor, who was one of the few professors whose name I remember, Dr. Campaniomi, and he was a joyful man, and I think, back, looking back on it, I suspect he was a Christian. But I, w I walked up to him and I said, Dr. Campaniomi, has anybody ever postulated, ever come up with a theory on how this could have been produced randomly? And Dr. Campaniomi just chuckled. He never answered my question. He knew. I knew the answer. And it really wasn't worth his breath to tell me what I already knew. I hadn't found God yet, but I certainly had opened the door to him. I, my atheism basically fell to the ground in shatters. 
But it wasn't very much long after that. My mom was dying of cancer. I was at the end of my college career. I had no idea what I was going to do with my life. And this is kind of, kind of revealing kind of what kind of nerd I am and, and prob- or was and probably still am. But I said to myself, you know, I've spent all my adult life, you know, I wasn't much of an adult, but nevertheless, all of that life assuming that God did not exist. So why not assume that he does? And so I got on, I was on, in my bedroom, I, I kneeled on my bed that night, and I prayed that God, if he was real, would real, reveal himself to me. And um, my next vivid memory was driving up 270. I could tell you the spot, but you wouldn't recognize it today. But back in those days, there used to be one condominium that you could see from 270. I used to call it the Condo of Babel because it was the only building over three stories high, and it stood out in, front, in, in the middle of this golf course. That's where I was. When I looked around, and I sensed God in all the creation that I was seeing. And it occurs to me now, more so than I think it did then, how much I already knew about him. Paul writes in Romans that his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. I knew God was a good, good God. I knew that he was beautiful, beyond description, simply by what he had made. All that I experienced in my life fell into place. How quickly things fell into place as I, as I viewed the world through the prism of a believer. And I think that that set me up for the next stage uh, part of this, this message because I read this about the body of Christ in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians. He writes this, For even as, as the body is one and yet has many, many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so is Christ. And further down in verse 27, he says this. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. Now before I begin this next part, I just want to mention one thing. Brad Martin, every time he comes up and he he speaks to us, he always brings in mathematics. So I feel it's only fair that I bring in a little biology. So I'm going to do that because I saw in that verse a continuation of what God has already established in his creation as, as, a, as, a, as a paradigm of how he, goes, how he went about creation. Um, and I only know the very surface of it, but I still think it's fascinating. And so I'm going to take you through a march through the animal kingdom. Just a small one, and I'm not going to get too detailed, but I do want to give you this concept. The very simple form of life that's capable of reproducing on its own is the bacteria. It's a very simple organism, but amazing. It's amazing what goes on inside the bacterium. Again, DNA, that whole thing. It, it, it's impossibly complex. It's impossibly beautiful in its, in its elegance and, and the craftsmanship, if you can call it that, that went into creating that organism is, blows my mind. But yet, when you look at it under the microscope, there's not a whole lot interesting going on there. They basically sit there and then they divide. A couple of them kind of kind of scoot around a little bit, but not much going on. 
Next up, you have the amoeba. Much more interesting to look at. And, interestingly enough, inside the amoeba are structures that look very much like a bacterium. In fact, one of them, the mitochondrion, reproduces on its own. You may have heard the term mitochondrial DNA. Well, that's because it doesn't need the rest of the cell. It, it reproduces on its own, just like a bacteria does. And next up, we have the lowly sponge, the first truly multicellular organism. Again, you could spend a lot of time looking at a sponge and not seeing a whole lot of things going on. However, the sponge does present a real problem that does for those who want to deny the creator. Because there's something about the sponge which absolutely confounds the whole concept of natural selection and random mutation. See, what they believe is that organisms randomly mutate, and then those that get some kind of an advantage take over that ecological niche, and they try to crowd out everybody else. And everybody's basically elbowing. It's like, it's like Times Square you know, knees and elbows the entire time in the microscopic world, trying to get an advantage, trying to get that one leg up. But in the sponge, you have something interesting going on. Some of those cells have specialized to the point where they don't reproduce anymore. And so for the person who wants to explain everything by random mutation and natural selection, how do you go about enticing an animal to rather than get selfish and just try to reproduce, give up the reproductive rights to serve a higher organism. I don't have a problem with that because I know the answer. It didn't happen that way. God took what he had already created. And I can tell you something. There's, if you look under the, 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 the amoeba-type animals, we call them eukaryotic cells. They're amazing cells. He could have just said, that's great, look what I did. But he didn't. He said, I'm going to take that and I'm going to build something even more majestic from that. And so he created these multicellular organisms built upon the bacterium, upon the amoeba. Now he's creating organs, eyes that can see. Can you imagine? Our eyes can see electromagnetic radiation. I can look down from a plane and see 20 miles down and see what's on the ground there by the miracle of sight. And it just goes on and on and on. So we have this amazing variety of life on planet Earth. I kind of fell my whole life like Adam. God taking me around to name the animals. You know, because that really was always my delight. No matter what else was going in my life, my favorite thing to do, whenever I travel somewhere, I go to the national parks. I don't go to the cities. I'm not a much of a city guy. I, and I, I appreciate those who feel differently, but for me, man, there's nothing better than to see another landscape, another ecology. I went out to San Francisco, and I'm looking at these different plants. And they're like, these are cool plants. They don't exist on the East Coast. That's kind of where my mind is. So I am very much delighted by what God has shown me. And I really feel that that's one of the reasons he put me on this planet. But back to our topic, the body of Christ. Why was this so important to me in, in understanding what this chapter says? You can read this, what Paul talks about the body of Christ, us being put together, joined together with Christ as the head. So he wants us to unite as he and the Father were united, to be one, as a very figurative, kind of flourishing language. I don't think so. I think it's literal. But I don't think that God is going to stick us together physically and create some kind of a monstrous 
being made up of individual people stuck together like he has with cells. I think we have to have a different frame of reference for what he's doing. And I have an example of that kind of frame of reference change. Um, and this goes back to the second book of Daniel, where King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has a dream. And I won't go through the details. It's a pretty long chapter. But essentially what happens is um, King Nebuchadnezzar goes to his wise men and his wizards or whatever he has, the Chaldeans, that, that he relied upon for his signs and wonders, I suppose, and said, I want you to interpret the dream and I want you to tell me what the dream was. And they're like, oh, we can't do that. Well, Daniel could because he went to God. He asked for prayer. He said, pray that God would reveal this to me. And so he did. And he went to king and he told him, this is what you dreamed. It involved a statue. But basically what Daniel told him was the king's dream was about what was to occur in the future. There were four kingdoms involved in that dream represented by that statue. The first was Babylon, which is the present-day kingdom when that prophecy was given to him. Next came Persia. Next came Greece. The next one was Rome. And he talked about Rome as being um, a, a statue with an iron foot mixed with clay. He said, because in the days of those kingdoms, these, this kingdom will never congeal to form one. It will always be separate. And we see in Rome that that was essentially the case. Rome never became one culture. It was always a fragmented culture. And then this is what Daniel says. And the last thing the, the king saw in his dream was a rock unhewn by hand coming down and crushing the statue. And he says, that rock represents the kingdom that God will establish in those days, the days of those kings referring to Rome, that will never have an end. It will never be given over to another people. Now we know, and Jesus Christ even said this, that the kingdom of heaven was established when Jesus was on the earth. He said this to John, about John the Baptist. He said, I tell you the truth, between the time of John until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent men attack it. So the kingdom of heaven we know exists, but we also know that it's not a physical kingdom like Rome, like Greece, like Persia, like Babylon. It's a spiritual kingdom. It's a different frame of reference. It's almost a different dimension, but it's every bit as real as those other kingdoms. It's not some imagination in God's mind or in Paul's ability to create this allegorical um, example of what we should think of each other. It is true. And what is also true is that we also read in several places in the New Testament, that Christ is the head of the church. He's head over all. So we are the body of Christ, joined together spiritually with Christ as our head. And I think it's a literal truth. And it also follows along with what God has already shown that he does. He takes something wonderful. It's not good enough. He combines it and builds from it something that's a, even more wonderful. Culminating with us, we actually have the image of God in us. And now he's saying, I'm going to take you, you believers, and join you together spiritually into something even more wonderful. You've heard Larry say many times that you are not simply a sum of your individual parts. 
You're part of something that could never be as great individually as you will be together. So I thought it would be fun to compare. Some of the things I think we can do a nice comparison between the cells of our body, our own human body, and the body of Christ. So let's go ahead and have some fun here. The one thing every cell in our body has in common is what? Every cell. Your hair cell, your skin cell, toenails, DNA. I can recognize whose cell it came from if I do a DNA analysis of that cell. What's the one thing every member of the body of Christ has in common? The Holy Spirit. Now, we can't see him, but God can see him. God knows who is his and who is not. By the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we become a member of the body of Christ. And one of the most remarkable things about the cells of our body is that even though every single cell has exactly the same DNA, look at the variety of cells we have. You've got brain cells. You've got hair cells. Now, if your brain cells started growing hair, it would present a problem. Joe's looking at me like, that's what's happened to you right now, isn't it? But it is an amazing thing that there is this vast variety of everything, every cell in our body, regardless whether it's a muscle cell, whatever, liver cells, they all have the same DNA, but they all express it in a different way. And so true it is with the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4, Paul declares, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. But it goes beyond that. The way we express the Holy Spirit is so much different between each one of us. And it can be a stumbling block in two ways, I think. The first way can be there's always a danger of defining the correct way of expressing the Holy Spirit by the way we do it individually. I might say, you know, I'm pretty much the model that I'm going to judge everybody else against. So I'm very contemplative. When, when I'm most deep in my adoration of God, I'm the most quiet. Um, I love the softer songs, the more contemplative songs. On the other hand, there are people that are exuberant. And it would be easy for me, I think, and sometimes I probably am guilty of it, and I think we all can fall into this little trap of thinking, well, they're too boisterous. They're just not where it's at when it comes to the Holy Spirit because if they really love the Holy Spirit, they'd be quiet like me. It's not true. The other trap is the opposite trap, and that is when we see other people who are expressing characteristics of the Holy Spirit in a way that we feel we cannot and we feel inferior and inadequate. I knew a guy years ago who could walk up to any man on the street, pin him to, and get into a conversation about Jesus Christ. And it was as natural for him as it was getting up in the morning and taking a breath. It was just who he was. And I looked at him and I thought, i got to be like that guy. Never has happened, never will happen. It's not who I am. I think we have to recognize that this variety is something God relishes. God never did the same thing twice the same way. They tell you that no two snowflakes are the same. We know that no two people have the same DNA except absolute twins, or I'm sorry, identical twins, and they don't act like each other either. So God is a big fan of variety. 
His creation is creative. And that's to me, is the highest compliment you can pay to the creators. We are creative, and we are his creation. And see, when I look at an artist's work, when I go into the galleries in the National um, Smithsonian, and I see uh, Morning in the Tropics, I don't know if you've ever seen that painting, it's just amazing to me that the artist was able to capture the beauty of a morning in the tropics with butterflies and mist coming off the water, and every leaf is like painted exactly like that leaf would look in a photograph. And I don't know how long it took this guy. But what I see in that man is an imitation of what God did when he created the creation to begin with. And this man is simply imitating the creator. We are creative because our creator is creative, and his creation is creative. And it's so cool. So that's one of the things that I could appreciate about the body of Christ, the variety. And they're all legitimate ways of, of, of worship. But they're not all appropriate to every person. And that's cool. That's good. That's what God wants. There's another thing that's true about the body. Our cells, the cells in the human body, can't be effective. And in fact, they can't survive on their own. Without the rest of the body to provide nourishment and protection, they die. Spiritually, I think there's somewhat true of us. I don't think we die. The Bible tells us that we, no, we don't lose our salvation. But our, we will weaken spiritually if we're not in the body getting nourished, being protected. Paul says it in Colossians 2.19. He talks about a person who has disassociated him, himself with doctrine and is now all built up in himself. He says, not holding fast to the head. That is referring to what that person has done. He's not holding fast to the head. And to the head, he's referring to Christ. From whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with a growth which is from God. Our spiritual nourishment really does require us to be plugged in. And I think that that's easily forgotten because, again, we're talking about things that are in the spirit. And I can feel perfectly fine as I am dying spiritually. Like I did back when I was in college, I can tell you when I had that moment of epiphany that God was not an issue in my life. I said that with a kind of smug satisfaction in my mind. So you can be led down the, by the deceiver very easily. All you need to do is get off by yourself and start listening to the voices. And he will certainly give you a lot of things to hear. He's got a lot of things to say, and they're all for your destruction and for the destruction of those around you, if he can get away with it. We need each other. Body has protection built into it. As an elder... My responsibility part partially is to police the doctrine to make sure that the truth is spoken here and that no infection comes in. We see what happens to churches that have not had effective elders. They die. The lampstand, I think, is jerked away from them, and they start spouting nonsense in the name of God, leading people astray. We have people, the body has cells that do nothing but nourish it. You know, the red cells come in and they give oxygen, they take away carbon dioxide. There are members of the body that do nothing but that. They nourish. They'll bring you meals. They'll cry with you when you weep. They'll 
laugh at you. They'll mourn with you when you mourn. We need that. I could go on and on and on. And this is going to be a rather short message. I thought it was going to be longer than this. But there's one thing I wanted to mention, and that is this, is this is one comparison which is an important one to make, but there are some differences. Consider the muscle cell in the bicep of a pitcher that's pitching in the World Series. Does that cell have any idea what's going on? There is no self-awareness in the individual members of our bodies. The arm doesn't even know what's going on, let alone the individual muscle cell. And nevertheless, something wonderful is being accomplished, though the cell is oblivious to it by design. In fact, one of the things that I find very, very fascinating is that within our mind, which is a wonderfully complex computer-like thing, not a single neuron has any self-awareness. Yet, we inhabit, we're like the ghost in the machine. Somehow within our bodies and in our brains, we have awareness. And that's a mystery. And that's another thing I wanted to mention. There's no reason to believe the mysteries have all been solved. In fact, <laughs> the more we know, the more we don't know. And the more we know that we don't know. And that's one of those mysteries. Where does this consciousness come from? But when I use this analogy in, in, in terms of the body of Christ, it's not quite the same thing. We're not like the oblivious muscle cell, simply either obeying or disobeying the commands of the neuron, saying, contract. And then the muscle cell says, no, not going to do it. He's not going to win the World Series. The muscle cells that say, yeah, I'm going to do it, right? Just, just you tell me I'm doing it right that quick. Um, that's going to be the winner. Now, we are somewhat aware. And I say somewhat. We see what's going on around us. But that can be a detraction if we think that that's all there is to see. Because, again, we don't know. We don't know what Christ is doing with his body. Only the mind knows. We can only see with eyes of faith what is being accomplished by the body of Christ in our world around us. And if you're like me, you can get pretty discouraged by that. I see the forces arrayed against us. Um, now it's opioids. But there's so many things that stand in the way of a person coming to the saving grace of God. I was lucky because I spent my time in the woods. He was working on me the whole time. He was like, hey, Frank, look at this. Hey, Frank, look at that. And then when I turned my mind to the fact that he might exist, I'm like, oh, that was you. That was you. That was you. And I was in awe, and I was worshiping before I knew what happened. But today's child may never even get there. Video games, there's so many distractions. There's one thing that Jesus said that I find extremely provocative. He was said this close to the time he was to be crucified. In John 16, 7, he said this, But I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now that blows my mind because I love this church. I do. I've been coming here for 20, 20 plus years. But if you said, hey, Frank, got a choice. 
you can go to church today or Jesus can come running down the street and you can go meet him. Really? What kind of choice is that? Who wouldn't say, I want to meet Jesus? But he said it was better for us that he leaves. Imagine that. What's going on today in the body of Christ, through the body of Christ, is better than it would have been if he had stayed. I think that's a challenging thought, and it's one that we have to only see through eyes of faith and have the faith that God is true to his word and the body of Christ. As, Paul, as Larry said last week, and I like the way he said it, the church is a manifestation of Christ in this world today. And the fact that it's headed up by Christ, it's designed by Christ, the fact that he's already been pretty good at putting small things together to make bigger things that are even better than what he's already done, and now he's doing it spiritually with us, I think is an incredibly encouraging thing. So the outcome of this, as I wrap up now, I really have three things. First, those of you who are not believers out there, who have dismissed the idea of God because you've heard that, oh, it's all explainable by evolution, natural selection, random, blah, 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 blah. And then you'll hear something about primordial ooze. I want to tell you what primordial ooze is. It's the slime that they want to wipe in front of your eyes so that you can't see what's obviously right there in front of you. There is no way. And this has been talked about among the biologists now. People talk about chaos theory. They say, "Uh uh-uh. I don't care how many eons you give them. As long as you don't spot them the first cell, they have nowhere to go. But nevertheless, you walk into the Smithsonian Institution and you see evolution. And you'll probably see something about primordial ooze in there. And it's a lie. It's a lie. So don't be beguiled. Come talk to me. I had the last debate I ever won was with Robin's cousin. He's a pretty well-to-do orthodontist, works out of Johns Hopkins, very successful man, and he made the mistake one day of going, those people that believe intelligent design, what a bunch of nuts. By the end of the conversation, he said, well, Frank, you're a Christian, but you're reasonable. <laughs> but he said, but I, and so I won the battle, but I didn't win the, won the, win the war because the next thing he said was, but you're the only one. But anyway, it was progress. It was progress. The next time I talked to him, he said, I read this article about intelligent design. And, and so, you know, getting from somebody from a position of atheism to the point of, hey, there's, there's a God out there. In my life, that was a very, very important step. And it took a while to happen, but I had to go through a biochemistry course. I don't recommend it. It was a tough course. The next thing is, I do want you to understand that through the eyes of faith, we can see what God is doing among, in our midst that we will not ever see through our natural eyes. And only through that eyes of faith can we have the encouragement to know that God is faithful and that he died for this purpose. He, he died so the helper could come, the Holy Spirit could come and knit us together into one being with Christ as our head. And the more obedient we are, the more effective we'll be in that body and the more effective we'll be in contributing to whatever the higher purpose is for this church for the churches in Maryland, for the churches in the United States, for the worldwide church. We're all one, connected in a very real way by the Holy Spirit. And finally, I hope that I've 
rekindled in some of you a sense of wonder and awe at the Creator through what He's created. It's more than magnificent. It's more than humbling. It's awesome. There's not a word in the English language or any language, I think, that really describes how wonderful God is, how amazing He is, and how much He wants to show it. He is delighted by our delight. I'm convinced of that. I think those walks that he had with Adam in the cool of the evening, Adam probably just couldn't shut up. God, you know what I saw today? In the tide pool. By the ocean. And he'll describe these creatures and he'll name them. You know how long that probably took? We don't know. The Bible does not tell us. But it could have taken decades and decades and decades for that process to unravel. Where he just every day was out naming creatures. And at the end of the day, hey, God, I can't believe what you did there. That's just cool. Let's pray. Father, it is a sense of wonder that I come before you this morning and deliver this message. And I do pray, Father, that it's a sense of wonder that I have imparted to those who hear it. Not by myself, Lord, but by your Holy Spirit, by what you've shown me, and I simply reveal what I've been shown. I do pray that we take more seriously the whole concept of the body of Christ, that we cherish our membership in it, that we become more and more selfless to serve it. Lord, I know we'll never be perfected in this world and in this body, but Lord, I know in our resurrected body, I wonder, Father, what you're up to when we come back as perfect, resurrected members of the body of Christ, what that's going to look like. I know we won't know it, and it would all be just guesswork, but I know it's going to be wonderful beyond anything that I can imagine. So I thank you, Lord. I pray for each one of us this week that you bless us this week, that we grow a little bit in you this week, and that we glorify you in some way in this week. And it's in Jesus' name I pray, and we pray. Amen.